Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for December 13, 2021. Here's today's rundown. The Medicare regulatory audit landscape is rapidly changing. We have an overview of the changes. The president and CEO for the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, William Dombey, will explain the changes coming to Medicare Home Health on January 1st. We'll also hear from David Glazer, Ronald Hirsch, and Nicole Emanuel. Ellen Fink-Samnett reports on the social determinants of health, and Matthew Walbright reviews legislative changes affecting health care in America. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. This is our last broadcast for 2021, and we appreciate your being with us today. We have much news to report, and we begin right away this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all, and good morning, Janice, who's got a mean boss. Well, as Chuck mentioned, this is the last Monitor Monday of 2021, and that means that starting this afternoon, there will be nonstop news from CMS, and I'll have no way to share it with you. Now, some of you probably remember my last segment of the year, I used to name Hirsch's heroes. But with the ongoing pandemic and the tremendous sacrifices of so many, especially in light of all the anger and distrust aimed at all of those in healthcare by the many people who received their medical degree from the Facebook School of Medicine, I'm just not ready to single anybody out for praise. Hopefully next year. So what else can I talk about? Well, remember that January 1st is the the new inpatient only list goes into effect. And that means that while shoulder, hip, knee, and ankle replacement remain off the list, most revision surgeries and hip fracture surgery repair go back on the list. I'll also remind you that while we always talk about the inpatient only list, my best advice is to never use the inpatient only list. Now, why is that? Well, the inpatient only list obviously only lists those surgeries, and it only includes a short descriptor. And if you look at the 2022 list, you'll see that total hip arthroplasty is still on the list. But that description is for CPT code 27132, which is actually revision hip arthroplasty. Now, if you look at addendum B, which lists all the surgeries, you'll see there are two surgeries described as total hip arthroplasty. Revision surgery is inpatient only, but 27130, the normal hip replacement surgery, is indicated as status indicator J1, so it's not inpatient only. Now, you can find these lists on my webpage, ronaldhirsch.com. Last week also brought a change to the pepper. No, despite vigorous lobbying by, lobbying by Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins, CMS did not change it to the PEPI report, but what they did do was add a new measure. The PEPR now reports on your hospital's coding of malnutrition. But if you need further details, you're going to have to listen to my segment tomorrow on Talk 10 Tuesday. Dr. Erica Reamer has kindly invited me to present on the topic. Finally, each year brings with it new payment rates. While beneficiaries got the bad news about steep increases in their premiums earlier, hospitals actually got some payment increases. For 2022, the observation APC payment is going up by almost $49. So with that windfall, I guess that means we can stop worrying about observation length of stay and going back to letting our doctors order all the incidental tests they want. 
Likewise, to outpatient total joint is going up $279. So there's no reason anymore to, to make sure that patients who weren't inpatient admission are admitted. Don't we wish it was that easy? Now, looking back on the year and all we've been through, my mantra remains unchanged. Always do what's right and the money will fall where it does. You're asking for trouble if increasing revenue is your sole goal. Happy holidays to everyone. Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch, very much. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report, it's Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Happy RAC Monitor Monday. Today I have not happy news of lower Medicare reimbursement rates and how a Medicare audit can lead to triple recruitment that many providers overlook. First, CMS lowered the Medicare conversion factor from $34.89 in calendar year 2021 to $33.59 for calendar year 2022, a decrease of $1.30 or 3.7%. In addition to this conversion factor reduction, there are several other across-the-board payment cuts for physicians that will go into effect January 1, 2022, unless Congress intervenes. These include a 2% cut due to the expiration of the moratorium on sequestration and a 4% cut due to pay-as-you-go legislation that was triggered by the American Rescue Plan. Taken together, these cuts payment could total 9.75%. Secondly, when it comes to Medicare recruitment audits, there are so many things to be aware. I guess that's why so few attorneys specialize in this. Sometimes a provider can get triple hit with recruitment. DME and POS providers are required to secure a surety bond in order to accept Medicare. Upon a Medicare audit and an appeal of such audit, in between the second and third level of appeal, before you are before an ALJ, recruitment begins, despite the fact that you probably don't owe the money. Even worse, your surety bond may also be triggered to pay out what you don't owe. This is a classic example of the right arm not talking to the left, which happens often with the government. You need to contact your surety bond company and inform them that they are creating a double payment situation. I've even seen the IRS step in and send letters demanding payments for the same monies being recouped by Medicare. Private payers also demand payments that overlap with Medicare reimbursements based on the audit that is in dispute if they were secondary payers. Private payers have no right to recoup. With the re premature recoupments, the surety bond paying out, the IRS and the private payers recouping the same funds, it can be a killjoy. Remember that the IRS, the surety bond company, and the private payers do not have the legal right to recoup the same funds being recouped by CMS. Do not be triple attacked. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Lemanion. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about uh, 11 minutes after the hour, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Halifax Henry, Matthew Albright, and William Dombey in Washington, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's December 13th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. 
The American College of Physician Advisors is the only physician-led, nonprofit national association of thought leaders representing all aspects of the physician advisor role. Developed to expand the influence of physician advisors through education and industry networking, the membership consists of physician advisors and other hospital leaders focused on a broad range of topics, including utilization management, case management, clinical documentation integrity, regulatory compliance, revenue cycle, and executive leadership. You're invited to partner with physician leaders and associated healthcare professionals and join their effort to foster greater physician executive influence within healthcare systems. Access uniquely formatted Medicare inpatient-only lists designed for ease of use, the results of their latest physician advisor survey, and take advantage of CME discounts available only to members. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to learn more. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, as I say, every Monday morning, what could be risky today? Uh, well, Chuck, I want to start off by just mentioning real quickly that Ron had an article that explained the difference between the inpatient-only list in the ASC list, and it was wonderful. The LinkedIn algorithms gave it to me, uh, and I highly recommend it. So over the last few weeks, I've seen a veritable explosion of audits and investigations. One client of mine has received three civil investigative demands in just over a month, and I can't count the number of clients who have received UPIC communications, with a number of hospitals receiving inquiries from both Medicare and Medicaid UPICs. During past broadcasts, we've discussed what to do if an OIG agent shows up your, at your door, or if you are the lucky recipient of a subpoena or a civil investigative demand. But one of the things that happened recently is totally new territory for me. Not only have we not discussed it here, I haven't seen it. The UPIC wrote my client a letter seeking a telephone interview with the physician. The request provided absolutely no explanation about the topic to be covered. It was a dear provider letter saying, quote, I would like to contact you to discuss claim activity recently submitted to Medicare where you were identified as the ordering slash referring physician. That's it. No patient name, no claim number, no general topic. As Churchill would say, it's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. The physician who received the letter orders a range of services, DME, prosthetics, orthotics, lab, imaging, since the letter referred to claim activity, it could involve a single patient or multiple patients. So if you're the lucky recipient of such a letter, what should you do? My advice is to have competent legal counsel reach out to the UPIC and ask for details about the inquiry. I am not a fan of allowing physicians, or anyone else for that matter, to submit to an interview without having a very solid understanding of the content of the interview. Even then, I recommend that if you agree to an interview at all, you have your competent counsel participate. UPICs are authorized to investigate fraud. They routinely make referrals to government investigators. One should treat an interview with a UPIC as comparable to an interview with any other government agent. Now, one interesting question is whether you're required to agree to the interview. It's clear that the UPIC can request the interview. The UPIC has the ability, and it's also clear that the UPIC has the ability to stop payments if it finds fraud. But is there an explicit obligation to agree if they ask you to talk to them? Well, if there is, I'm not aware of it. The bottom line is you'll want to be polite 
and tread carefully, but I see no reason to throw a professional to the wolves alone. Get your counsel in the mix. Now, many clients worry that involving legal counsel will make them look guilty. I've heard agents play to that fear with a statement like, well, if you're innocent, why do you need a lawyer? Well, that's exactly backwards. Innocent people need lawyers even more than the guilty. When a guilty person gets in trouble, they're arguably getting what they deserve. By contrast, an innocent person in the crosshairs of the government is a true injustice. While involving legal counsel doesn't guarantee justice will be served, a good lawyer has the ability to increase the likelihood that the investigation stays on track. Now, I can't deny that investigators are frustrated when subjects get lawyers. And while I don't normally advocate intentionally annoying someone, think about why the investigators are frustrated. Counsel makes the investigator's job more difficult. And when you're the target, anything that makes the investigator's job more difficult is good for you. So Chuck, I'm a huge fan of the 10,000 Maniacs. And I will confess, I had a bit of a crush on lead singer Natalie Merchant. She offered good advice. When someone from the government, whether they're a gun-carrying agent or a person employed by a contractor like a UPIC, contacts you, don't talk. I will listen. You keep your distance. Ms. Merchant is wise. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredericton Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Celis, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Celis delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Chuck, as of last week, all three of the Biden administration's vaccine mandates have been halted by the courts. As listeners may recall, the administration has released three different vaccine mandates, each with a different authority, and each were to take effect in early January. For one, in the face of a nationwide injunction by the courts, CMS has suspended enforcement and implementation of the vaccine mandate directed at employees at hospitals that use Medicare or Medicaid. That would include most hospitals in the United States. Two, The administration has also stopped enforcement and implementation of the vaccine or test mandate aimed at workers at private companies with 100 or more employees, again, because of a nationwide stay by the court. Three, last week, a federal judge halted the administration's vaccine mandate for federal employees and federal contractors across the country. In the meantime, the outgoing mayor of New York announced a first-in-the-country vaccine order that applies to every private sector employer in the city. You can't get out of the mandate by testing, and there are no exceptions for small businesses. We'll see if the incoming mayor keeps the mandate, but in the meantime, we can probably expect local and state vaccine mandates to come forward, even as the federal mandates seem to falter. And President Biden announced that Americans will soon be able to get at home rapid COVID tests reimbursed by their insurance. Currently, you can get tests covered for medical reasons, 
but most insurance does not cover tests that may be needed for work, school, or travel. Guidance on how this will work will be available in mid-January, but the policy has come under fire by some public health experts for not being as broad as other countries. For example, the UK has a program in which it regularly sends free at-home tests to its citizens. In response, the administration argues that if the U.S. government distributed free tests, many of them would go unused. And as well, the administration has said it does not want to stifle competition in the burgeoning test industry. In other news, the comment period for the latest No Surprises Act regulation ended last Monday, and within days, the American Medical Association and the American Health Association filed suit against the rule. The contention here is the same since the No Surprises Act regulation was dropped in October, when the administration put forward its Qualifying Payment Amount, or QPA, policy. Essentially, the QPA policy presumes that a plan's median in-network rate or QPA, should be the proper reimbursement for the out-of-network claims covered by the Act. The AMA and the AHA, as well as many other providers and lawmakers, would like to see other factors given equal weight on the reimbursement, such as the patient's acuity and the quality of the facility. With the comment period just ending on the Act's interim final rule, the administration does have an opportunity to withdraw its QPA policy as is currently written and put out a different policy in a final, final rule. On the other hand, since the regulation was an interim final rule, the administration could also simply just put out an announcement that they're going with the policy as written. Either way, Chuck, we should expect to hear something out of CMS before the new year on the No Surprises Act as the rule goes into effect on January 1st. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Sandwick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. So with everything else that's gone on this last year, now we have rising opioid rates. Again, emergency department visits, overdoses, and deaths. This issue has reemerged with a vengeance during the pandemic. And while the incidence and prevalence of overdoses has been seen across all populations areas, those areas and populations most prone to social risk have been especially hard hit, primarily lower socioeconomic areas and communities of color. A quick review of the three major waves are associated with the opioid epidemic. Wave one was the well-publicized increase in overdoses and deaths from prescription opioid pills in the 1990s. Wave two entered circa 2010, stemming from massive increases in heroin deaths among adolescents and young adult users. Wave three involved a pre-pandemic surge in overdoses and deaths from synthetic opioids as morphine and fentanyl. Well, the final wave had just begun to ebb in 2019 and 2020, though a dramatic rise came from the pandemic. Experts have now noticed a fourth wave that is expected to outpace those prior to it. CDC data shows a record high number of drug overdose deaths for 2020, over 93,331 to be exact. This number reflected an increase of 20,000 deaths from 2019 and the largest increase in 20 years, up 60% from synthetic opioids alone. A study conducted in partnership with the National Institute on Drug Abuse at the NIH analyzed overdose data and death certificates from four states, Kentucky, 
Ohio, Massachusetts, and New York. And the following themes were identified. Rates of opioid deaths among Black people increased by 38%, while rates for other rural, racial and ethnic groups did not rise. Rural areas were hardest hit. The highest increases in Vermont at 70%, West Virginia at 62%, and Kentucky at 55%. This fourth wave has been frightening, and it's been watching and waiting until 2021 is over to see will it shift. However, the numbers continue to evolve, up 28.5% over the 12 months from April 2020 to 2021. The tally of drug overdose deaths hit over 100,000 people. Treatment stigma for addiction has been a major point for attention, especially due to racial disparities. Data consistently shows persons of color less likely to be prescribed medications or other resources for their opioid use disorder. Many patients end up seeking heroin, often laced with fentanyl, overdoses in black communities largely due to fentanyl, which is far cheaper and easier to access. Now, considerable funding is on the horizon for 2022. $30 million in new grants are aimed at harm reduction strategies to combat opioid abuse, $10 million to be distributed annually over the next three years. Funding for needle exchanges and fentanyl test strips is included, plus other programming to enhance access to community harm reduction services and support the providers. Applications will be accepted from state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, tribal organizations, nonprofit community-based organizations, and primary and behavioral health organizations. A link to funding appears in my upcoming story for Rack Monitor News. Our Monitor Monday survey this week asked, how much of a problem has opioid use become for your patient population? Not at all, somewhat considerable, do not know, does not apply. Well, we'll be back in a minute with the results. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Ellen Frick-Samnick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. So what's happening to home health? Well, that report is next. But first, this very important message. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Looking for a special holiday gift that comes with unbelievable value? A gift that keeps on giving? Imagine a gift of continuing education credits for your team. Consider the MedLearn Media Resource Center. A gift subscription to the MedLearn Media Resource Center covers the broad range of learning needs for everyone in your organization. It's the one place with webcasts, ebooks, coding charts, premium news content, and more. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. With this gift, your team will have unlimited access to every MedLearn Media Resource contained in the libraries of MedLearn Publishing. ICD-10 Monitor and Rack Monitor, all from one convenient location. Consider a subscription to the MedLearn Media Resource Center. It's the perfect educational gift. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey. And once again, here is Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you so much, Chuck. So how much of a problem has opioid abuse come for your patient populations? Well, about 3% said not too badly, so that's always nice to hear. But 21%, and that is where it gets very concerning, said somewhat considerable, closer to, and it's changing as I'm speaking, right at the 30% mark, with you know some folks not as informed on the impact yet for their populations. But we will know 
it will continue to change and advance, but hopefully some of this funding will make a considerable difference moving forward. Take care all, happy new year, and back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much for your survey. There are so many changes taking place very quickly on the audit landscape. And one of those places is America's Home Health. To report on those changes effective next month, here is with us today, the President and CEO for Home Care and Hospice. That's William Dummy. Good morning, Bill. Welcome back to Modern Money. What's the big news? Well, thanks for the opportunity to bring the big news about home health. Uh, it, it settles down to one area of, of great interest, and that is value-based purchasing. On the good news side, Home Health Value-Based Purchasing Demonstration Program has clearly indicated that home health brings a dynamic value to the Medicare program. On the audit side, though, it raises concerns whether or not we see a new expanded area of audits, and that's on quality reporting of data by home health agencies. CMS has decided that there will be a nationwide expansion of their value-based purchasing program beginning January 1st, 2023. But 2022 is a pre-implementation year. There'll be collection of data, sample performance reports. The first performance year will be 2023, and the first payment year affected by this will be 2025. But it is a here and now area for home health to consider. Why is that? Because there will be 5% of home health agency payments at risk with payment increases or decreases based upon performance. And the performance is in competition between all of the home health agencies. So a home health agency in Oregon will be competing with a home health agency in Connecticut, will be competing with a home health agency in Florida, and so on and so on. 5% at risk uh, means a significant impact risk for home health agencies. But Medicare will be looking at the quality data accuracy to make sure that the value-based program is accountable to the distribution that comes from that competition. The VVP will divide smaller and larger volume agencies into cohorts for comparison. Larger agencies will be those that are required to submit uh, a HCAPS survey in a performance year, and smaller agencies will be so small that they're exempt from that reporting. The measures that will be used in the model align with the current Home Health Quality Reporting Program but also claims-based data will be used, particularly as it relates to the issue of hospitalizations and rehospitalizations, along with OASIS and HCAPS data, patient satisfaction data. No new measures are built into this, but we can anticipate because now these measures have financial impact, that they will be subject to over oversight and potentially audits as well. We provided a number of comments about starting the program a year later than originally proposed, which would have been next month. CMS agreed to a one-year delay to help home health agencies prepare, but it still is an active year relative to data gathering and performance measurements. The amount of savings to the Medicare program is actually astounding, nearly $3.5 billion being saved by Medicare over a five-year period of time. The 5% aspect of what's in play is approximately $5 billion over that same time period. So this is material to the home health agencies. There are concerns about the measures and whether they reflect the full scope of the home health benefit. And there are also concerns about the risk adjustment model for those agencies that care for patients that may be more acutely ill 
than other agencies are caring for. But in the end, you know, we look to that issue of auditing of quality data for the first time in a Medicare program because that data is not only now connected to public reporting of the performance of home health agencies, but will be connected to the amount of payment received by those agencies over the period of approximately five years that we expect this demonstration program to be going. So is this a new era where it's not just claims auditing going on? Is this a new era that focuses in on quality data? We believe it is, Chuck. So thanks for the opportunity to rejoin you at Monitor Mondays, uh, and we hope you all have a good holiday season. Thanks, Bill, very, very much. That was the President and CEO for Home Care and Hospice, William Dombey. He is a friend of this broadcast. And that's going to be a wrap for this Monitor Monday, and we want to thank you all for listening today. This is our last broadcast for 2021. And I want to thank a couple of folks behind the scenes who need to be publicly thanked for their work. I'm talking about the Monitor Monday producer, Emily Anderson. Thank you, Emily. And her line producer, Laura Baker. Thank you both very much. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sam Dick, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Bill Dombey, who reported our lead story. One more thing before we go, when we're not on the air during the holiday, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until Monday, January 10th, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Happy holidays, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.